says, I start among the many things I'm thankful for is dogs. Um, last week, I, uh, it was funny because last week I, I cared about, you know, I just kind of jealous. I'm like, uh, you know, I was going to make some confessions that I don't like cats very much. And, and it's kind of funny because uh, a while back, a few months ago, I did this cute part thing on the end times. We're talking about the end times and like, stuff that's going to be happening and revelation and I mean, the shakings of the earth. And this summer, we did these hot questions, these hot button issues. And I did not have as much dialogue in any of those put together as much of that dialogue as I had last, last week about cats. Man, that was amazing. That, uh, that stimulated a lot of conversation with people. Dog people were like, yeah, cat people were like, I'm not speaking to you right now. But I am thankful for dogs, and I'm going to give you a few reasons why dogs are better than cats. Because I felt like that we just must keep the dialogue open here, and uh, you can talk to me afterwards if you want. I'm sure most of you will. Number one, rescue dogs. You know, there's a there's a uh, violent uh, you know earthquake, and they send dogs in to find people. I've never seen a cat do that. Never seen a cat be trained to do that. Service dogs, you know, people that may have a physical limitation and you see them going around, they have service dogs, maybe they're blind. I've never seen a service cat in my life. Come on, people, you don't, you don't see them. How about police dogs or military dogs? I just saw a video recently of a, uh, maybe you saw it, it was pretty intense. This cop gets out and he's going around and he's pulled this, this truck over. Well, the guy in the passenger side is going to go around and kind of bum rush the cop with a gun. The, his canine partner sees him, jumps out the window and takes the guy down. Did you guys see that? You've never seen a cat do that. I think a cat, like a police or a military, I think the cat is like, you are on your own, man. I, I'm out of here. Stay quiet in here. I'm just having some fun. Dogs at nursing homes to calm people. Never seen a cat do that. I think cats are talking about in the environment. And then they just told me something really interesting. So they have now training dogs that they can they work with diabetics that they can sense when your blood sugar starts to drop, and they, they can beat the machine that lets you know. I think cats can do that. And here's if you see these pictures of military or police where someone, an officer, passed away. Have you seen the dogs laying there sadly by the casket? That is amazingly sweet. And cats are like, oh, it's just eating me Now, that, that's probably what you're going to get to the cat. That's why dogs are better than cats. We can talk about the dog dog. Let that in. Your friend is just eating um, so we're taking a one-week break from uh, from the series I Am Tristan, but we'll pick it up next week. Um, today I want to talk about the importance of having a culture of thankfulness. Um, I feel like the Lord really put this on my heart, and as I begin to study, it's very interesting and, 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 and incredibly challenging to see how God wants us to live a life of thankfulness and how it is essential for us as followers of Jesus to live a, a culture 
of thankfulness. On a very serious note, I'm so very thankful for the many things that God has blessed me with. My, my, my precious family, my wife, my children, um, this church family, we thank God for you. We thank God for uh, allowing us to be able to do what we do. Um, as I had said about uh, last week about, uh, you know, I am just going to thank you, church leaders. I, I, I'm very blessed that I get to do this. And, and I'm so very thankful for that. Um, in Scripture, being thankful, life unity is very critical, has very major implications for our lives and our testimony. I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Because we live in a culture that tends to be very ungrateful. It focuses on what we don't have instead of what we do have. There's a joke that was running around about two neighbor ladies and one that she loved the Lord and uh, she was trying to befriend her neighbor lady. The neighbor lady um, sold produce and had livestock and she was a chronic complainer. There was nothing ever good. And, 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 and the, the, the neighbor lady that loved the Lord was trying to always help her maybe try to find something positive, find something to be thankful for, you know, just living in that place. And she's always, it's hard to talk to her because she's just negative all the time. And so one of her, uh, she brings a produce in, and one of the things that she did, uh, she grew potatoes. And, and so the lady wants to go over there and see her produce, and she's looking through it, and she is kind of going through all the potatoes, and she does not find a bad potato in the whole bunch. She's like, this is amazing. I can point her to something. I don't, I don't see anything bad because she, you know, she used to say, oh, your cabbage looks good. And she goes, well, you know, these are bad. And she would find the bad ones. And it could have been better. You know, how, how was your crop? Is your great, but it could have been better. Um, and so she looks through and makes sure all the potatoes look amazing. And she said, all your potatoes look great. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something to be thankful for? And the lady looks and she said, yeah, but now I don't have any batteries to feed my pigs. Some people, it just doesn't matter. They are intent on finding something to be critical and unthankful about. There's some sobering words in Scripture, 2 Timothy 3. We'll go to the, the next step. This is talking about the end times. Uh, Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. We talked a little bit about that, you know, some weeks ago about the last days and the shakings. But look at this as he's talking about the last days. He said, people do lovers of themselves, with seeing that lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. And then look at this, the next one. Ungrateful. They're unthankful. Isn't that amazing that Paul clumps those other things in there and, and then right in the middle of it is, it, with all this bad stuff, is being unthankful. And then he says, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without ethical, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. But in there, unthankful. People will have a, just a culture in their lives, a lifestyle of being ungrateful. <laughs> And again, we live in this culture of unthankfulness, and we can see it all around us. We live in this entitlement attitude of, I deserve this or that for me. And it just leads us to a culture of just depression and, 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 and all kinds of, of bad fruit that comes out of being unthankful. There was a secular article written not that long ago 
and it gives 22 habits of unhappy people. And I want to take a look at what a few here that I think are tied to unthankfulness in a culture of unthankfulness. And here are some of them. Because this is a secular article. If they're picking up on something, even in culture, chronic complaining, talking poorly about it, holding grudges, not forgiven, jumping to conclusions or presumptions, tied to unthankfulness. Magnifying things that you know the word, blowing things out of proportion, constant discontent. In other words, I hate my job, I need more money, never happy with anything. And I know there's sometimes when people are going through hard situations and they might wish they had a different job that paid better. But I'm thinking, God, God what, what can we be thankful for? God, thank you for this. And as followers of Jesus, it should be different for us. And our witness should be to strive to have a culture of thankfulness in our hearts and our lives. And here's the thing. As we look at Scripture, we are going to see something unfold. It is more than just a good idea. We are commanded to be thankful. We are commanded to live a culture of thankfulness because there's so much riding on it. And all of these attitudes, if you look through Scripture, the Bible undermines all of these things or justification to live that way. The Bible takes our excuses away and it calls us out on those attitudes to forsake them, to repent of them, and to ultimately change. How do we do it? We, we do it with Christ's help and the, and the Spirit's power. It's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works and operates in our lives to make us more Christ and to change us from glory to glory. I am a church member. You know, the subtitle is, is the attitude that makes a difference because it is really about our attitude, isn't it? And being thankful is an attitude. It's a choice and not feeling. Gary texted me this morning, did not know that I was going to say that today. It's because beyond our feelings, being thankful. And so God wants us to be thankful more than just this Thursday in November that we celebrate this holiday, but to continually live a life of thanksgiving. Because we deserve it. But not only does He deserve it, He desires it. And He doesn't want us to take His blessings for granted. And again, there's a lot of perspective here. Um, I've shared this story some time some time back, but when we were, I got to go on, on a short commission in 96 in Tibetan South America. And I tell you, when you're, when you're among third century uh, you know, people, you see a level of, of perspective that we don't have here. And uh, there was one area where we went to get, we get some food and clothing items, and it's, you know, it's shacks, it's boards that are nailed together, like, you know, just whatever they can get to put together to make them sort of dwelling. And, uh, you know, you have families of four, five, and six living in maybe, you know, a ten-foot cube. And one guy walking along, you know, we've given some food, and he is just smiling, and, and we come up and, uh, to where he lives and spray-painted, you know, they, they don't paint their houses there, but he spray-paints on the side of his house, God's gift. I'm thinking, you know, I was so convicted by saying that, and to, just to talk to this guy, to just talk to a great list of God's gift that I'll shelter over my life. God can give us a new perspective to see things 
the way you see things. His blessings come in different ways. It's not all just the good stuff or the perceived good stuff, because it can all be good stuff when we see it in light of Christ and eternal life. So let's look at some scriptures on being thankful. These are, what I'm going to show you, are three very popular scriptures, but they're difficult passages. Let's look at the first one. I think I read this from earlier. Common, common. Slide. Boom, there it is. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is will for you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever wrestled with what God's will is for you? What, I just want to know what God's will. Let me, take, let me go ahead and tell you one. If you give thanks in all circumstances, that God's will for you. How do we do that? I mean, in theory, we like that passage and we can quote it and, and, and maybe memorize it, but in theory, is it hard to live out? I like that it doesn't say we can give thanks for all circumstances, but we can thank and be thankful in it because God is working. And in a moment, we're going to look at how, how and why we can do that. Let's look at the next one, Ephesians 5, 19. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God, Father, for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, thanks for everything. How do you do that? Look at the, the last one. We'll expand on this one a little bit later. But he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Again, I say, rejoice. So, what's Paul saying? How do you do it? Because I think a lot of times what we do is we've narrowed thankfulness to simply what we call the good stuff of life. We don't have to understand everything in life and be emotionally happy. When something hard comes away, there's, you know, it's not a facade or this fake idea of being thankful. We don't have to pretend, but we can allow it to be a deep work of the heart. And I think that that's what Paul is getting at. It's not just this outward pretending that everything is okay. But I think that there is a depth in our heart that, 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 that ultimately God is looking at to do a deep work of the Spirit. And when we're walking in surrender to Jesus daily in relationship with Him, we can say those things from our heart. We can say, I don't, I don't get what you're doing right now. This is very difficult. But because I belong to you, I know that you're doing something. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Paul made it clear that our giving of things should be continual and not contingent on our circumstances. It's ongoing in spite of the circumstances, not just because everything is going right. Again, I think it's okay to recognize that we're in a season of grace or peace and, you know, thank you, God, for that. But I think sometimes when things start going south, we immediately go into kind of this scramble mode of trying to figure out, and you can say, God, I don't get it. It's very difficult, but I'm going to thank you and tomorrow. Paul was able to maintain this uh, attitude of thankfulness, even though he himself faced very devastating circumstances. And, and you can read all about it in prison and beatings, uh, you know, people turning on him, and, you know, in prison for this, and then a shipwreck. And, you know, at some point he could have just thrown up his hands and said, you know, whatever. I mean, I didn't, God, I didn't sign up for any of this. But he maintained this attitude of thankfulness. And, 
even writing in Philippians, just rejoiced in the Lord always, and he wrote that from a prison cell. Or house arrest. His circumstance is not being very good because he held on to the right perspective. He was convinced in his heart, not just throwing around again Christianese, that God was good all the time. I think sometimes we think God is good all the time, all the time. You know, we can say that, but do we really mean it? Are we really convinced of it? Paul was convinced of it. He knew that God, a good God, would only allow circumstances that would ultimately result in something good in the glory of God. That's why he could write in Romans 8, all things work together for good to them that love God. All things. So his attitude was this. Since God is good all the time, then this bad circumstance must be meant to bring something about in my life that is going to be good or else God would not have allowed it. So he maintained the right attitude. And in maintaining the right attitude, let me say this again. This isn't the absence of doubt. It's not the absence of questions. It's not the absence of confusion or frustration in this life. We will experience those things. Sometimes things are hard. Sometimes there's just this big question mark about the season that you're in. You don't get it. I also know that sometimes we are in a battle with the enemy and that the enemy is doing things that we have to war do warfare. I mean we're told in Ephesians six that you know we're waging war in the, and 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 virtually understand that the weapons of our warfare are mighty from God to the pulling down of strongholds. So I, I we understand that and there's sometimes there is a battle. So sometimes that we we're, we're wrestling with these things. And so maintaining the right attitude is not the absence of doubt, questions, confusion, or frustration. But it's maintaining the right attitude through it. Keeping our eyes on the Lord because I I have to believe, and, and if you look at these people, I think Paul struggled sometimes. You have to believe that Job had questions, and he did as he wrestled things out. We read about his, it's almost like reading his journal of frustration, and then his friends who are beating up on him. And he dealt with some very hard, hard things about who God is and what is going on here. But he kept worshiping God, he kept his eyes on the Lord. Joseph is another one. I talked about this some time ago, but the Genesis 50-20 principle. Remember all that Joseph went through, believing that God was working there. He, he said this, he said, you, talked to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish now what is being done, the saving of many lives. And so he could see even the hardship of his life being falsely accused, being abandoned by his brothers, being lied about. He said, you meant it for evil. God turned it into something good. That is the redemptive power of God if we really believe we maintain that right attitude. God can work through anything that we're going through. The enemy means it for evil, but God does something good. And so this is an encouraging picture of the pain and the suffering in our lives, all the negative stuff that we're facing. Some of it, again, originates from the enemy. But the enemy does not have the last word for people of God. Amen? God can take what the enemy meant for evil and do something awesome. 
this January we're going to be doing a series, and I want to just pause there and give you a little commercial because it's pertinent for right now. But we're going to be doing a series on suffering. Um, what God's intentions, what He's doing in the midst of suffering, the purpose of suffering, how to walk with people through suffering, how we can walk through suffering in victory. But I think for a long time in the church, we don't really know what to do with it until we dodge it and we try to have the right words and, 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 and we just kind of fumble that. And I think that we need to put it front and center and say, God, what are you saying? Because there's a lot in Scripture about suffering. That we will endure suffering. And so, how do we walk through it? How, what, what is God doing in the middle of it? And so, we're going to put this front and center. I'm very excited about it. It's going to start January 4th. And uh, we, we, we have a, uh, a precious couple that are going to be with us on January 4th. I'm going to be doing a, a, an interview with them. You will not want to miss the, their story of what they have endured, what they have gone through, and ultimately what God is doing in and through their lives in the midst of suffering. That's all I'm, all I'm going to give you. Be there. Invite people. Again, sometimes we go through hardship and we suffer in consequences. We make horrible decisions. And it does that. But here again is the redemptive side of God, the love of God. If we repent and turn to Him, we can redeem it. He can turn a defeat into victory in our lives. So having this attitude requires us to maintain proper perspective, eternal perspective, keeping our eyes on Jesus in the midst of our circumstances. Again, it's very hard. It's, it's easy to think, principle. it's easy for me to stand up here and preach it, but we have to live it out. And I'm, I'm asking God to help me in my own life that we would continually lean on Him, give Him our lives every day, and to recognize how desperately we need them. That, that enables the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk through those difficult times. Let me give us three reasons why having a culture of thankfulness is essential in our walk with God. We're going to look at these, um, again, as, 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 as an essential attitude to have, to have that culture of thankfulness. So let's look at the first one. Why having a culture of thankfulness is essential in our walk with God? Because the world is watching and listening. And again, I told you, if you look at Scripture and you see this culture of thankfulness, it is critical. And there's much at stake. Our thankfulness is directly related to our witness. People are watching and listening. What's the biggest complaint about Christians in the world? Say it out loud, you know it. The biggest complaint about the church and about people in the church. Hypocrites, I heard that. Hypocrisy. It's very true. It's one of the number one reasons why people, they, they say they don't want to go to church. And I'm like this. Yes, we are hypocrites and we have room for one more. Because everybody, there's, there's not anyone on planet Earth that doesn't struggle with hypocrisy. That you say one thing and you live a different way. And I, you know, I just embrace that. We are all broken and we need Jesus. But the world does watch. And the, one of the biggest complaints is hypocrisy. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that hypocrisy is okay. But when our lives don't match up with our methods, that's a problem. It isn't about perfection. 
but a part of the world watching is that they see our response even when we blow it. Do we make it right? Do they see us repenting? Do they see us going toward God or making excuses for our sin? They watch us how we endure hardships and trials. If you don't think other people are watching or listening, look at your kids. I shared this uh, some years ago at Eden Night. We, we had the honor of, of, of serving this church and working with children's church. And it is so funny because, man, I tell you what, kids, there are no filters for kids. They will tell you everything that's going on. I think that I think people were nicer to us when we were working with their little kids, because they would come up there and you're like you know you know have them share. And man, you open the floor to kids, that's a hilarious thing. Does anybody want to share something? Man, 15 hands go up, and you're not quite sure what's getting ready to fly. And a lot of times it was about the family business. Like, oh, we probably shouldn't share that here. I said, no, thank you for that. Or the kid that wants that little mess, mess, and my dad did, you know, and <laughs> okay, you know. But our kids are watching, and they're listening. How many parents, and we're reliving this now with Judah. A while back, I was talking about something, and I used the word hell, not, not as a curse word, I wasn't, wasn't ranting around the house, so just let me clear that up. I mentioned the word hell in a, in a, you know, in a, it's a legit comment about hell. And that's the only word he hears. He just goes, hell. And I'm like, why didn't you hear any other word? I mean, you know, it could be like Jesus and redemption and love for speaking. He picked up on that and just repeated it. You wish your child would have not heard that because you knew they would repeat it to others. They have selective hearing to keep us honest, to keep us humble and accountable. And it seems that they rarely hear what you want them to hear. Yet they always hear what you don't want them to hear. And again, this thing said about our relationship with others in the world, and why the world seems to ignore the good news that we try to share with them at times. They seem to be all ears from the negative things or negative circumstances that are happening. But all of a sudden, you have all this surrounding of people and they're watching. They watch what our response will be or how we handle the situation. So uh, the next scripture, Acts 16. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. So there's a lot of negative circumstances. Again, this is something that Paul was walking through. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stock. About midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Praying and singing hymns to God. And what did he say? And the prisoners and other prisoners were listening to them. People were paying attention. And here's a horrible circumstance. I mean, when you think of what is going on with Paul and Silas, this is, this is bad stuff. This is paralleled with, remember when Peter and John were beaten for proclaiming the good news. What was their response? They came out of the temple area, worshiping God, thanking the Lord that we would be worthy to be beaten for the name of Christ. They didn't say, God, you've left us. 
this negative circumstance, you know, all is lost and it's all bad and, and God, we were worshiping you and we were giving our lives to you and you turned on us. They saw the suffering as an opportunity to worship God and say, God, thank you for being worthy. And I think Paul and Silas have a, a similar thing here. They've been lost severely. And just use your imagination. They're beaten pretty bad. Then they're put in stocks. And, and what do they begin to do? They begin to just worship God. And they begin to just get their eyes on the Lord and, and just sing songs that the other prisoners are watching them. And they're listening. So when our circumstances sometimes they, they, they turn from good to bad, when the flow of God's blessing seems to be temporarily shut off, and you'd like to say, God, we're with the faucet out. We tend to forget at those moments of what God might be doing and the world will be watching our lives. So what am I saying? That suffering provides us one of the greatest opportunities to demonstrate the validity that we are followers of Jesus. And again, I believe that God can intervene in so many different ways. He is a miraculous, supernatural God. He can perform miracles that is easy for Him. But I think an equally great miracle is when He doesn't supernaturally rescue or get us out, but we walk through it with our eyes on Him, declare to the world that I am His follower, and it's an equally great miracle. If we're grateful and joyful only when things are good, how are we any different than the world? What would we possess that they would want? Let's look at the next passage, First Peter 2, 12. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will, what? See your honorable behavior. They're watching. That's what Peter's saying. They are watching. They will give honor to God when He judges the world. In other words, your life... And your thankfulness is tied to your testimony and possibly giving your neighbors an opportunity to come through the, to know the Lord just by how you are processing and going through hardship. That they might glorify God by watching you. And then what Jesus said, Matthew 5. says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. People are watching. And again, Jesus is not just saying, you know, that we're to be a, you know, just, just to be a light and just to be a witness and just to be a, a servant, but even we can be a light on how we walk through hardship. And if we just get ungrateful and unthankful and we get bitter, they're watching. And so we can let our light shine by being thankful. So having a culture of thankfulness, first of all, people are watching and it has eternal implications on the lives of people around us. They watch, they listen, and what message do they see in us? Again, we're called to be different, not perfect, but being thankful and repentant when we need to be. Secondly, why is it so important for us to have culture thankfulness. State is paying attention. Let's look at the scripture, what Peter says. 
Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now, in preparing for this message and looking at this passage, and just, I, was, I was taken to something that I have really never had seen before in this passage. Most of us are familiar with that big controlled standard your enemy, the devil roars, like a, you know, goes around the roaring lines, seeking someone to devour, resistance, staying firm in the faith. But did you realize, if you look at it in context, that it's tied with how we are enduring suffering? Isn't that interesting? Resistance, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. He's tying suffering how they are enduring suffering with the devil going out like a, like a roaring lion. He said, God all grace to called you to his eternal glory for you. After you have suffered a little while, will him suffer story you. And so this passage of the enemy looking for someone to devour and to destroy is related to how people were doing as they walked through suffering. Be self-controlled, alert, mindful. That's what he's saying. Be mindful. Not fearful of the enemy. It's not to bring glory to the enemy. It's not to try to find the enemy under every little thing. You know, the demon of this, the devil of that, and where's the demon of this? It's the devil of the, the blinds, it's the demon of the curtains. And, you know, sometimes we just, we're looking for the devil all over the place. Get our eyes on the Lord. Recognize that the devil is at work. Paul said that we have an enemy who hates us, who wants to destroy us. Recognize that, but don't live in fear of it. Be mindful of it. Self-controlled, resisting, and standing in your faith through suffering. What better way to resist the devil and stand firm in our faith than to thank God and worship Him in spite of our circumstances? And so the opposite is true. The enemy will devour the us when we are when our thanksgiving is replaced by grumbling, complaining, and fault finding. Satan accused Job. Remember Satan accused Job when he went before the Lord? And he said, yeah, Job served you because you, know, you placed this protection around him and you blessed him. And, and he's saying, he said, God, if you take that away from him, he'll curse you to your face. And Job passed the test because although he struggled, although he had doubts and although he had questions, he maintained his love of God and his faithfulness. So when we all be thankful and when things are going good for us, and then they get negative when circumstances are hard. I believe the enemy is going to turn up and eat a little more on you and me. Like a lion listening for the sound of wounded prey, Satan listens for us to gripe, complain, be unthankful. He listens for those sounds of accusing God, of being unfair. And then he's ready to pounce. Peter tells the readers to just take heart because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. 
Why does he say that? Because Satan, one of Satan's tricks, one of his ways to, to get us is to isolate us in our suffering, isolate us in those negative times, to make us feel like that we're the only ones facing the struggle. What is Peter saying? He said, your brother, they're facing the same kind of thing you are. Be encouraged. More than misery loves company, by him that's saying, it's be encouraged. You're not alone. Other people are fighting this fight. It feels like you're all alone, but you're not. And when, sometimes when you're isolated and you feel like I'm the only one, that's where the enemy will choke off thankfulness. He'll destroy us. And so he's paying attention. But here's the thing. He will only come in where the door is open. So keep that door closed to him. Lastly is this, the, the, third, the third reason why thankfulness is something that is God's paying attention. God is paying attention. Let's look at this passage from Luke 17. You're familiar with the story from where ten lepers came to Jesus. And, you know, in that day, they were outcasts. I mean, it's not a good thing. There are leper colonies that exist today. Back then, you know, they, they could not be around anyone. They had to be together. They had to walk about saying unclean, unclean because of their condition. They had to be cut off from society, their family. I mean, it, it, was, it was a brutal thing to be a leper in those days. And they see Jesus far off and they call and have mercy on us. And Jesus comes up to them and he ministers them and heals them. He goes to show himself to the temple uh, priest. That, and as they went away, they were healed. And then one out of the ten comes back. He happens to be a Samaritan. He falls at Jesus' feet and he embraces Jesus. And he understands what has just happened. He's been given his life back. And he's so thankful. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. And he was just, God, thank you, Jesus, thank you. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, and Jesus asked this, we're not all ten sons, who are the other nine? Isn't it interesting that we're told in Scripture that Jesus is paying attention not only to the thankful, but to the unthankful. He is watching our hearts. And he takes note, and he's wondering, where are the other nine at? Because it's easy just to take the blessings, thank you for that, and now I'm going on my way. This is a temptation for a lot of people, and I call it they live in crisis Christianity. They're going through a hard thing. They're going through a difficult season, maybe suffering, maybe something in the world is falling apart, and they fall on their knees, and they begin, God, I need you. And they're like these, they're like these, uh, these lepers, and they're crying out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Save me. Get me out of this. And Jesus comes in, and he ministers to them in some way, and they can get on the other side of it, and they go, oh, I'm good to go now. I don't need Jesus. And, they, and you don't see him again. Tragic. So Jesus, I'll come back around when I have another need. And he's like, I want you every day. I want your heart every day. Not just when you need something. Look at this passage from Second Chronicles. What the Lord says. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those who are fully committed to Him. So the Lord is looking about. So he's looking for those whose hearts are committed to Him. Again, not just when things are going bad, but always. 
It's interesting that these words were originally spoken to King Asa of Judah. God was greatly actually displeased with King Asa's action. King Asa was one of those who started well and didn't finish so well. He had been confronted by a mighty army, and rather than rely on God, he made an alliance with the king of Aram. And God goes on to say to, to finish the thought, you've done a foolish thing, and from now on you'll be at war. That's kind of the afterthought of this passage. You didn't come to me. You, 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 you were looking for earthly allies instead of to me. You were looking for answers outside of me. You were running to look for answers in the wrong Places. And so what was God saying is, I'm looking for people that I can demonstrate my power and strength through. I'm looking for people whose hearts are committed to me all the time. They trust me through the good, the bad, the ugly. And so our unthankfulness is tied to not trusting God. It's interesting that just in a few chapters later after this, in the same book, another king comes along named Jehoshaphat. And he did just that. And when God saw the commitment of his heart, he had given his heart to the Lord. He released his mighty power to deliver Jehoshaphat from his impossible circumstances. And here's one of those stories in the Bible. I love these stories. Israel is greatly outnumbered and God shows that. You know, the odds are not forever in their favor. Come on, you guys. Come on, you guys. Hunger Games, please help me. Somebody. But there was basically three armies against one in this story. I love this passage of Scripture because you're going to see thankfulness tied to God's victory. Listen to what God has to this about. I love this passage. Actually, people on the worship team will recognize this. I gave this new devotion on the list start, and we'll move through this passage. Just take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. You know, that when you're looking out there, the tendency is the obvious, right? That's why I said, don't be afraid. He kept telling Joshua, remember Joshua 1, don't be afraid because I understand that the obvious should make you afraid. You're, 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 you're outnumbered. You are, you are severely outnumbered. Don't be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Supposed to have bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah position fell down and worshiped before the Lord. That's the great place to start when you're going through hard circumstances. Get on your face before the Lord. Worship him. Verse 19. And then some of the Levites and the Kohites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord the God of Israel with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah, and people in Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. Verse 21. And after consulting the people of Jehoshaphat, appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. So they're on the battlegrounds, and he puts the worshippers out in front. And that's why, even in talking about last week, praying for church leaders, pray for the worship team, too. 
That's why there's so many churches, there's these, they call them worship wars about styles and things, and music ministry is such a, a, a focal point of the enemy to cause attack. And I think in this passage you see why the importance of what they do. They're on the front lines. And so, before they would even think about fighting, they would say, we're going to do this in the spirit realm. We're not fighting against people. Uh, this idea of us being overwhelmed by numbers, we're understanding that our first response is worship. And they begin to worship and praise God for give thanks to the Lord for His love and doing forever. And as they begin to sing in verse 22, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who are invading Judah, and they were defeated. Verse 23, the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. So you see what's going on. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Isn't that funny? They helped to destroy one another. Through worship and through praise, God caused the, the armies to go into confusion and to turn on each other. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooked the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. And so thanksgiving is tied to God's power being released in us. When we say, I'm going to give thanks to God for His love endures forever. And it opens the door to victory. And so God is looking for people in whom He can show Himself strong and mighty. But those people must be people who are whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Not just when it works. Not when it's just convenient to them. People who are willing to thank Him in the midst of difficult circumstances. When the enemy is surrounding and you feel like that all hope is lost and you get your eyes on the Lord, there is nothing that touches his heart more than we say, God, I trust you. The enemy is around, but I'm going to thank you. I may not have anything else. I may not know what else to be thankful for, but I know that your love is good, that you are good and your love endures forever. If that's all I have, that's all I'm resting on. That touches God's heart. Let's look at the rest of the story from Acts 16. Let's go to the next slide. I said this earlier. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Remember, they had been beaten. They had been put in there. Singing hymns to God and other prisoners were listening. People were watching. What does it say? Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Isn't that a great story? In this situation, Paul and Silas giving thanks to brought freedom. Suddenly the chains came loose. God stripped the foundation of the prison. But it's interesting as we read on, they didn't yet get out of prison. That's important to note here. Verse 35 indicates that it wasn't until daylight that they were actually released from prison. It's significant because Thanksgiving doesn't always immediately bring an end to your circumstances, your average circumstances. But it will always bring inner freedom. That you can have freedom in the midst of it as they did. The victory may not be the escape from circumstances, but us walking with our eyes on the Lord through it. Being a witness of His work in and through it. God pays attention when we are thankful. 
when we lived in Florida when I was the up as a jail ministry, and one of the young men that we ministered to me and he ended up and he's serving a life sentence in prison. He was on death row at one point, and uh, when, when we went to visit him, we got to go see death row, which is kind of eerie place. And, you know, we, we didn't really talk to these guys that you've ministered to at the county jail. So we haven't seen him in some time, and you don't know what kind of condition his heart will be. Um, you know, my son Ozzy, who did this for many years, you know, he said that there were those jailhouse Jesus conversions, you know, that you know, crisis Jesus where they would, you know, they're going through, you know, God get me out of this, and then if things didn't go out, go their way, he said, I've seen so many guys that turn on it and say, I don't want it anymore. So, you know, they, they weren't legitimately sold out to God. The standing was different. It was beautiful. We got there, and they brought him in to see us. And he was just smiling and just, uh, and we were like, how are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm involved in Campus Crusade. I mean, not Campus Crusade for Christ, but the Chuck Colston one. Um, help me. Prison Fellowship Ministry. Thank you. And he said, I'm involved in a Bible study, and I'm, I'm just in the Word. And, uh, and so it was just refreshing. And, you know, you're there to minister to him. And we, we walked away. We're all, you know, this guy ministered to me. Because he said something that just was so profound. He said, I'd rather be in here and have what I have in my heart and have Christ and be free than to be out there and not have it. This guy has no chance of getting out ever. And for him to say that was so profound. He kept his eyes on Jesus. And God is paying attention when we are thankful. And so Paul and Silas served the, served the remainder of their sentence in prison, but they did so that loose from the chains that had bound them. So your thankfulness may be tied to your freedom from fear. And the thing that's making you afraid, you may not get out of that, but you might get, fear, you might get freedom from fear or depression or anxiety or worry or stress in the midst of the circumstances. Those chains falling off as you are worshiping God. Those chains leaving you in the midst of it. So it's funny, in the army in Seven Chronicles, they were outnumbered, seemed beaten, and thankfulness caused the enemy to go into confusion. Your thankfulness is directly tied to God helping you defeat the enemy. In closing, I want to go back to Philippians 4. It's the last one. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident all. The Lord is near. And then he goes on to say this. Do not be anxious about anything. And that's, again, one of those very hard passages to wrap your mind around. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. We can't do it without God's help. We can't live that out without His help, without His strength, without the power of the Holy Spirit in operation in our lives. And I've said this before, but I think sometimes Paul would throw out these statements that seem overwhelming and seem like that's impossible. How do you not be anxious for anything? And I think what Paul is doing always in the things is exactly. You can't do it. You need to. Every day. But I love this text because our peace is also directly linked to our thankfulness. When we come to God with a trusting heart, not anxious, not all is lost, and we 
present a request. He's not saying don't present your request. We have requests. We have needs. There are things that we're going through. There's times when we're suffering. And you can bring those. That's okay. Ask God. Talk to them. Talk to them about it. Bring your petitions. But bring it with a thankful heart. God, I don't get it. You see it, but I thank you that you're on the throne. I thank you that you're in control. I don't understand it, but you're in. You're, you're doing something here, and I want to thank you for that. It touches his heart. He says, "When we come in that attitude, he gives us a peace that at least transcends understanding. In other words, it goes beyond human wisdom. We should be stressed out. We, you know, a, a right thinking person who used to be. Why aren't you stressed out? Why aren't you?" Why isn't this driving me crazy? I don't know. It's that, that God has given me peace. That's all I can understand is because of His work in me. And it transcends understanding and it guards our hearts and our minds in promises that are tied to being thankful. It does not say that we will always get the answer that we want, but we will get His peace. Jesus wanted titles. He is the Prince of Peace. So what he's saying is you're thankful. You give your request in a thankful attitude. Then you get not just peace. You get sense of peace. You get that. And that's ultimately the answer that we need. And in preaching all of this, I would love to tell you that my life has lived in a culture of thankfulness. And that if you could just live with me for a while, I'll model it for you and how to do it. But as I shared last week, I'm broken too. Steve and I always have fun that we talk about it. It's easier to preach it. And, and, and you mean I've got to live it now? I'd like to say that I have it all figured out, but I don't. And more often than not, my thankfulness has been contingent and not, or, or, or been contingent on, on my circumstances and not continue. But I hope today, as you see in the Word of God, and we allow the Word of God, the Spirit to illuminate the Word, how important it is for us, how critical the implications are eternal. Because people are watching, the enemy's watching, and God Himself is watching. And I pray for all of us, me included, that it drives us to a place where we fall on our knees like the army. That was the first place they did. They fell on their knees. They began to look to God and begin to say, God, I need you. I worship you. I give you thanks because you're in control and you can take all of this and you can turn something good out of it. This will only happen when we surrender our lives to Christ every day and allow His Spirit to work in power in and through us. We stand with you. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you that your word is true, that your word is awesome. Lord, but as we study it, we read it, we preach about it, Lord, we, we do say today, God, that in and of ourselves it's impossible. Lord, how do we do this? The Lord, you are the one who comes and you supernaturally are doing work in us. God, I pray that we would live a culture of thankfulness every day, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, that this ultimately will remind us every day of how much we need, Lord, the gospel. We need the cross. We need Jesus in our lives every day to be thankful. We need the work of your Spirit to be thankful. And that, Lord, ultimately, I love that where it says that your eyes go around the world. You're looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to you. 
Not halfway, not only committed when things are going bad, but that are fully committed. And God, I pray that for each of us, that our hearts would be fully committed, fully surrendered, unconditionally surrendered to you, Lord Jesus, because you are good. You can take anything in life and you can redeem it. Lord, help us to be thankful. Give us strength in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have an awesome